0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. For our first lesson this morning, we read part of the Ten Commandments, and occasionally we read them in worship, as we did on the first Sunday in Lent. But sometimes I wish we read them every week, because they never fail to humble me and to convict me and provide another opportunity once again to receive the grace and mercy of God. Well, today I want to zero in on the first and second commandment, looking again today as we looked last week at this idea that our hearts are idol factories. Indeed, as Calvin said, the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. And what is an idol but anything on which our heart relies and depends, like money and material possessions or other less tangible possessions like intelligence, beauty, honor, skill, favor, power, friendships, family relationships. An idol is something that we treat in the way that we ought only to treat God. But an idol is not God. An idol is just part of creation, whether it's a created thing or a created person. An idol is something that we have the illusion of controlling and manipulating, which leads us to mis- misleads us into believing that we are gods ourselves. And you can tell that an idol is holding sway in someone's life when what is ultimately important in life or in a given situation is pushed aside for something that's merely penultimate, when the peripheral gains the main focus and distracts someone from God. But we have nightmares about losing our idols, indeed, but we also have daydreams about attaining them. And this, for me, is the area where I am most often guilty of idolatry. In the place of my dreams, my plans, my visions. And dreams are not bad things in and of themselves. But then again, no idol is. A dream Concept, a vision, a plan, or an idea produces an idol when we get so obsessed about the false reality in our head or the way we want things to be in the future that we are oblivious to the real world of what's going on around us. Calvin wrote again that the human mind substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God And then other evils are added. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol, and the hand gives it birth. The idol is dreamed up in our head, savored, embellished, put forward as what must be, and then we work religiously to attain it in reality. And there's that fine line between when this good thing, which is just a good thing, becomes the ultimate thing, a thing that we wrongly believe can save us, whether we hope that it could save us from boredom or loneliness, insignificance or irre- irrelevance. The fine line is crossed when the concept becomes the master instead of the servant. I've seen other dreamers and artists walk this tight rope line between working toward a common vision, a good healthy plan and vision, and then um, falling on one side and allowing the vision to dominate unhealthily. During my time in the theater, there's always a sobering moment during Tech Week, which is the last week before a show opens, when the whole cast and crew has to let go of the original vision that they dreamed up together and just go with what they've got. There were always tantrums, prima donna fits, arguments, conflicts during that last week as the dream died I've seen this with films also, when making a film there will always be some beautiful footage that has to end up on the cutting room floor. As William Faulkner wrote about the process of writing itself, you must kill all your darlings. In art, as in life, not all of the beautiful or true things that we would like to happen in this life will happen. And we will have to let that go. I've seen this phenomenon also not just in art, but also up close many times over as I've been a bridesmaid in very many weddings. Every couple dreams about what their wedding will look like. Or at least every bride dreams about what the wedding will look like. And as the bride dreams, um, the danger is that the dream she would like things to go on that day that she's imagined her whole life, the danger is that that vision will overshadow the beauty of the reality of the actual marriage. The pen ultimate becomes, for those brides, the ultimate, and that's when the tantrums come. The vision of what the wedding has been imagined to be floats upward like a beautiful iridescent balloon, only to be burst with a sudden pop when anything unplanned dares to happen. Well, there was a wedding to crown all weddings that I was in 10 years ago. It had been planned for several months to the hilt. I'd been privy to all the -the behind-the-scenes drama, and there was a lot of drama. I was even serving as the replacement maid of honor for the maid of honor who'd been fired by the bride. So i was a little nervous as you can imagine the big day came the big weekend came every detail was in place or so it seemed she had managed it she had made her dream become a reality and then there was so much rain more rain than connecticut has probably ever seen it did not stop raining for one moment and the day came and there was no way that the ceremony could be outside as she planned, as she dreamed. And so her vision of how it would be, how it ought to be, was dashed to pieces. And that's where the Lord entered in. It was a miracle uh, by the grace of God. This bride, Zilla, was able to allow her dream to die so that she could receive the full beauty of the reality of that day. Her day came, the rain never let up, and we tiptoed around her saying, okay, what's she going to say? Miraculously, she was serene and calm. When asked about the rain, she said, it doesn't matter. I am getting married today. The bride had let go of the penultimate, and she had finally grasped What was ultimately the most important part of her whole wedding well today in our second lesson from the Gospel of John we find ourselves there at the beginning of Jesus's ministry in the temple to celebrate Passover and though God had originally given the temple as a temporary means of atoning the guilt of his sinful people The beauty and the glory of the temple had become the be-all and the end-all for the Israelites. The temple had become for them an idol. The people of Israel had mistaken the penultimate for the ultimate. They had become so engrossed in the type, the shadow of what was to come, that they were unable to receive the beauty of the real thing when it was right in front of them. They had... Come to see the temple as the only place where God would be manifest to them. And so they were so bedazzled by it, obsessed by it, that they failed to recognize Jesus, God in the flesh, there in front of them. And so when Jesus takes authority over the temple to cleanse it of the money changers, the religious leaders challenge him. They ask him, what sign have you to show us for doing this? Jesus cryptically responds, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. We too, when our idols are challenged or toppled, when those balloons go upwards and they just keep getting popped one after another after another, we want to challenge God. Much like those in the temple long ago challenged Jesus. Who do you think you are? Well, God is God. Jesus is God. And we are not God. God is God, and the good things in this life that we love and cherish, all those vain things that charm me most, they are not God. God is God, and the good plans and dreams that we envision are not. God has the right to break through to us, and sometimes he has to break through to us by knocking out the crutch that we have created to prop ourselves up with so that we don't have to rely on him. God has the right to displace anything that usurps his place in our lives. And so the sign that Jesus gives us when we shake our fist and say, who do you think you are? is the same as the sign that he gave 2,000 years ago. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. For those of us whose dreams have been burst, or for those whose worst nightmare has come true, for those who still haven't found what they're looking for, for those who've lost everything, we know that reality can be harsh. But the beautiful reality of who God is and what he has done for us will carry us through the harsh reality of this life. As good as our plans and our hopes and our dreams might be, they pale in comparison with God's own goodness. Because the one true, eternally good God is the one who has given us the gift of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. His disciples knew later that he was talking about his own body. Jesus was referring to the once and for all offering of his own life, which would make the temple offerings obsolete. Jesus was destroyed for us to forgive and to heal our idolatrous hearts. So when Jesus destroys our idols, when God moves in and the living God cannot stand anything that is not himself in his presence, that would be worshipped by us, that would usurp his place, when our dreams are popped, as we hold the broken fragments of them, we can trust that God, who is the source and giver of all good things, desires good for us, even when it feels impossible. He desires the best for us because he loves us and in part of that best is that we would not put our trust in any idolized ideal or created thing that cannot save us by the power of Jesus's death and destruction on the cross we have the sign the sign of God's great love for us we know our sin of idolatry is forgiven and removed, even if we keep creating beautiful balloons that will get popped. By the power of Jesus' resurrection, we can trust that all that was good about our hopes and dreams will be somehow fulfilled and reborn in him. And so, to the living God who destroys any created thing that we are tempted to worship, to the Lamb who is slain to offer atonement in the heavenly places, and to the Holy Spirit who fills us and renews us, be glory and honor and power and might forever and forevermore. Amen.